Our world is polluted. <laughs> Our world is polluted this morning. And it would seem to me that the closer you look and the further you dig into it, the more of a mess that you will observe. So we say it, our world is polluted. There's such tragedy and such problem in our world today. You don't have to look very hard or very far to find a news headline highlighting one of today's major issues. They say bad news sells newspapers, and that's true. And so usually only bad news makes the news, right? I heard it this past few months, specifically throughout the pandemic, but somebody made the statement that enragement is engagement. So they make the headlines as dramatic and as volatile as they possibly can to get the clicks and all of that. But it does not diminish the fact, and the truth still remains, that our world is polluted by problems. We can look around the globe and we can see that hunger, access to drinking water, disease, homelessness, poverty, political unrest and fear, persecution and senseless killing. And then you turn from the social and the political sphere and you will find a myriad of moral issues, single motherhood, the collapse of the nuclear family in the 21st century, rampant Hollywood messaging, promiscuity, pornography, homosexuality, abortion, racial tensions, hatred, substance abuse, alcoholism, and a seemingly endless flow of agenda-driven messages influencing our children. And many of these issues, unfortunately, they have a way of creeping into the church arena, not to mention the challenges that this end-time church already is called to face. False doctrine, apostasy, denominal divisions, disunity of the body, and literally billions of people yet needing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have I depressed anybody this morning? This is a pretty bleak synopsis of our current day, and, and I'm certainly not saying that there is nothing good happening in our world. There most certainly is, but these are real issues that must be addressed. And as a Christian or for us today, collectively, a church congregation, how do you process it all? How can you be confronted with all of these realities and not live under a dark cloud of heaviness? I think sometimes it's just easier to shut off our empathy receptors and turn into emotional hermits. Sometimes it's easier to not care about any of it because there's such a flood tide of tragedy and problem out there and we feel that if we care about some of it, then we're obligated to care about all of it, and we can easily feel overwhelmed. Somebody say amen. We begin to feel this sense that we are drowning in chaos, and so some choose to merely shut it off and ignore it all. And they would say, I couldn't fix these issues if I wanted to, so I might as well ignore it. But for the Christian, this, this is not a viable option. We are commanded in Scripture to care for the needy, the hungry, the homeless, the widow, the orphan, the imprisoned, and yes, ultimately, the lost. We are called to care about our fellow man out there and also called to care about the needs of those within the body of Christ. And so we can't choose to disengage and to live a cloistered life. 
Because God needs people, spirit-filled people, to go and minister to the needs of others. And if anybody is going to do something, I think it should be the people of God, don't you? And so shutting it all down, shutting it off, and doing nothing, that is not a solution for the body of Christ. But if we're honest, the truth is, it just feels overwhelming. And we don't know where to begin. When you look at the landscape of the world, yes, the global society and and those needing Jesus, it can feel daunting. The fact that we are called to reach into that mess and try to make a difference. You know, let's, let's just turn our eyes from the world for a moment and look at the context of our little corner of the world. Here in Atlantic Canada, the Maritime Provinces, the Holy Land. At least to me. Here in New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, and Nova Scotia, we're pushing nearly 2.5 million people, a meager population compared to the rest of the world. But even within that, 2.5 million, a number that, you know, it's kind of hard to really appreciate each individual. And most of these do not know Jesus. Many are broken and confused. So let's narrow it further. Think about our city, the greater Fredericton area, having a population of about 100,000 people. And even still, perhaps you think, how can I make a difference? How can my life, my family, and my church make an impact? And if we're honest, anything that we could do to impact somebody else's life or their need or reach somebody with the gospel, it feels inconsequential and insignificant. In the grand scheme of the mess that our world is in, our efforts feel like a drop in the bucket. And it doesn't feel like us pouring our lives into the lives of others really does that much. But I have come this morning to address that sentiment. The sense that what we do for God or what we do to help people, it feels like a blip on the radar. Considering all that needs to be done, the people needing reached, the Bible studies yet to teach, the neighborhoods yet to be impacted by the Spirit of God, it feels like a drop in the bucket. Somebody say, a drop in the bucket. You think your life and what you do and when you pour yourself into others or into people, it doesn't do much. And you know what? Sometimes when you start reaching and start teaching and start preaching and start encouraging, it doesn't feel like anything happens. Anybody been there? It doesn't feel like anything changes. But just hold on. Because even just one drop in the bucket can create ripples in the water that reach far. And it is truly impossible for us to understand how far-reaching our impact is as believers. Truly, only eternity will be able to tell how our seemingly meager efforts and our drop in the bucket made a big difference. So don't ever underestimate what just one kind deed and what you sharing your testimony with just one person, what you preaching the gospel on your job or in your school classroom to that one person, what that can do in your world. 
Because hell may seem to be influencing many for evil, but you impacting even just one life can upset the plans of the enemy and have far-reaching, eternal results. I believe that today. And so I want to take you this morning to a story in the Old Testament found mainly in 2 Kings chapter 11. And here is the backdrop. King Ahaziah of Judah is murdered by the henchmen of neighboring King Jehu of Israel. And in the wake of this tragedy, Ahaziah's mother, a lady named Athaliah, she decides that she wants to sit on the throne of Judah. And so she seizes on the opportunity and she does something absolutely drastic. She has all of the potential heirs to the throne killed. 2 Kings 11 verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of King Ahaziah of Judah, learned that her son was dead, she began to destroy the rest of the royal family. I'm not sure how Athaliah gets to this point in her mind, frankly. Perhaps the news of her son's death makes her snap and sends her into this rampage. Maybe she had always secretly wished that she could possess power, and this seemed like her best opportunity. The Bible is not clear on how many she killed, but probably some nephews, all of her grandchildren, likely even her own sons. Any potential challenger to the throne of Judah, they were on the chopping block. Their lives forfeit at the hands of this depraved woman. And one can hardly imagine being among those to be killed. Imagine being just a young child, rounded up by evil henchmen, ripped from your parents' hands. And just before they run you through with a sword, your final thought that crosses your mind is, my own mother, my own grandmother is doing this to me. What a mess. What a tragedy. And so Athaliah, in this fit of rage, she takes out everyone she can so that she can sit on the throne, and she is successful. And for six years, this wicked queen rules with an iron fist. This is a bleak moment in Judah's history. The kingly line from which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would someday come. This line seems to be terminated, and hopelessness abounds. It seems like wickedness has won the day, and evil has triumphed. And worst of all, it seems like no one can or could have done anything about it, but that's where you would be wrong this morning, because thankfully, there was one heir that the wicked queen missed. Now imagine you aren't one of the ones on the chopping block, but instead you're a bystander in this situation. Imagine being a sister of the recently deceased king, for example, and you are watching with a front row seat as one by one your male relatives are being rounded up to be murdered. Imagine looking into the faces of your siblings, your nephews, and other relative heirs that will soon be killed by a crazed Athaliah. And you know that this is likely the last moment that you will ever see their young faces and you feel helpless. It's all that you can do just to hold back tears as you consider their fate. I can hardly imagine the overwhelming sense of despair. But thankfully, the king did have a sister. And she had enough courage to take action. Her name was Jehoshaphat. And she pulled herself together just long enough to snatch away her youngest nephew, the infant heir to the throne. And his name was Joash. 
But Ahaziah's sister, the Bible says, Jehoshaphat, the, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Ahaziah's infant son, her nephew, Joash, and stole him away from among the rest of the king's children who were about to be killed. And she put Joash and his nurse in a bedroom, and they hid him from Athaliah so that the child was not murdered. Hear me today. Jehoshaphat was a godly woman. She was married to the chief priest Jehoiada. And together, for the six years of Athaliah's reign, they hid and they helped raise this little boy in the temple of the Lord. His name was Joash. Or the more full form of his name, Jehoash. And his name means Jehovah Fire. You see, the enemy tried to snuff out all hope and all potential for God's plan. But these godly people, Jehoshaphat and her husband, they kept Joash alive. One little flickering God fire that they kept burning with their influence. They hid him in the temple. They took him under their wing. They raised him. They nurtured him. And they said, you can't have this one devil. I may not be able to do it all, but I can do something something and I'm going to do something with just one life and impact just one. You can't have Joash, Athaliah. You can't snuff out this little God fire. We're keeping this flame alive. You see, in the face of overwhelming evil, it's easy to ask the question, does my little life even make a difference? What good can my good deeds or my right choices make weighed against the mountains of evil that exist? The pollution in our world. What good does me sparing little Joash's life do compared to all the other lives that are being lost? But Jehoshaphat's life reminds us that helping and influencing even just one life, somebody say it, one life can make a huge difference. Because in six years' time, that little boy that they spared would resume the throne of Judah. His life became the embers that ignited a fire of godly resistance, which ultimately overthrew the reign of the enemy, Athaliah. God's plan was fulfilled. The line of David was restored, and it was all thanks to one woman who couldn't do everything, but she did something. She couldn't save them all, but she saved one. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, it is better to light a candle than curse the darkness. And that's great, but I think I like the way Paul the Apostle said it even better. Romans 12, verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil, somebody say it, with good. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Can I tell us this morning that the enemy, enemy wants nothing more than to paralyze you by overwhelming you with all the bad news and all the ways that he seems to be winning. But we need to flip the script on hell today and allow me to remind us that good overwhelms evil. So don't be overwhelmed by hell. Overwhelm hell by doing something good. You may not be able to do it all, but do something and watch God work. 
God can take our meager efforts and, and what we consider to be small. God can take our drop in the bucket. So we say a drop in the bucket. And it may not seem like it does very much at first, but God can take it, use it, and work it to change our world. There was a pastor a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago. His name is Andy Stanley. He's a Southern Baptist pastor, and he preached a sermon that really is probably one of his most famous sermons to date. And in that sermon, he made this statement. He said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It might just change the world. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It might just change the world. I think we fall prey to the idea that if we do it for one, then we have to do it for everybody. No, you don't. He, he uses the illustration in his message. He said, you know, you go to your mom and you say, hey, mom, can I have a cookie? And what does mom say? If I give you a cookie, I have to give everybody a cookie. No, you don't, mom. This can be our little secret. I'll take it to my bedroom. I'll eat it under the covers. You can do it for me. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It might just change the world. We shout about the 3,000 souls added to the church in Acts chapter 2. And the 5,000 who heard the word and believed in Acts chapter 4. We get excited when the Bible talks about the number of disciples multiplying in Acts chapter 6. And that's apostolic. Big numbers is apostolic. But you know that much of the book of Acts is ministering one-on-one. -on -one. The Ethiopian eunuch had Philip in Acts chapter 8. Aeneas the paralyzed man and Dorcas the deceased coat maker. They had Peter respectively both in Acts chapter 9. Cornelius and his family had Peter preach to them in Acts chapter 10. Lydia the cloth seller had Paul and Silas. And the Philippian jailer likewise had Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. And Apollos, an eloquent preacher, had Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Can I remind us and suggest that impacting one life is just as apostolic as seeing 3,000 souls added to the kingdom? In fact, it is the one-on-one -on -one ministry that spurs events like Acts 2 and Acts 4 and Acts chapter 6. It's one-on-one -on -one ministering to our world. And you might think, well, just one, it, it seems so small. This flies in the face of our North American culture that is enamored with big things, big crowds, big bank accounts, big numbers, however they come. And ministering to one feels like just a drop in the bucket. But look at how Jesus describes the kingdom. Matthew 13, 31. Here is another illustration, Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Just a drop in the bucket. It changes everything. In Acts chapter 9, we read one more account that I'll draw our attention to and come in for a close here soon. 
One other account of one-on-one ministry, and it is perhaps the most dramatic conversion story in the entire Bible, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul is a religious zealot who is going around killing Christians in the name of God, no less, not realizing that the God he claims to serve is the very one he is resisting. And while traveling to a city called Damascus to do more of the same, Saul has an encounter with Jesus. A bright light shines. He's knocked off his horse to the ground. Jesus begins to speak to him and ultimately tells Saul that he is to go into Damascus, but not to go and murder Christians. Just go and wait for further instruction. And so Saul, now blinded by the light, he is guided by his traveling companions into the city where he sits for three days, not eating or drinking. At this same time, the Lord is speaking to a disciple named Ananias, who is also in Damascus, the same city where Saul is waiting. And the Lord instructs him, this disciple of the Lord, to go to the place where Saul is to preach to him and and, and to pray for him that his eyes would be opened, literally and spiritually. Now, Ananias, he is well aware of, of who this Saul character is. And as you can imagine, he is not wanting to go. He is a terrorist in every sense of the word. He knows that Saul usually kills people who follow Jesus. And and Ananias is saying, hey, Jesus, do you not know this? (laughs) He might kill me. And so he protests God's assignment at first, but eventually he obeys and he goes to Saul. And the scripture says this, Acts 9, 17, and Ananias went his way. And he entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, the one that appeared unto thee in the way as you were coming, he sent me, that thou might receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Because it's not culminated and it's not completed until you're filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen? And so immediately the Bible says that there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received his sight immediately and arose and he was baptized. Ananias preached the gospel to Saul and he laid his hands on him that he might receive his sight and the Holy Ghost. And I would put it this way this morning, that Ananias had the posture of impartation. I'm going to lay my hands on you And I'm going to pray for you that you might receive. This was the posture of this man of God, Ananias. He went in and he laid his hands on Saul, the Bible says. And he prayed that he might receive sight and that he might receive the Holy Ghost. But you see, this morning it wasn't only Ananias the one we might call the preacher, the pastor, the the evangelist going house to house, if you will, that played a part in Saul's relationship with God. We thank God for this man that preached to Saul and laid his hands on Saul, but I submit to you this morning, that wasn't enough. Because Saul had done a lot of bad stuff. His life had been polluted with hatred and, and with violence. He was Guilty of murdering and abusing the very ones that he has now joined. And so a short while later, Saul, as a brand new Christian, he's trying to make connections in the church. Trying to fit in and trying to feel a part. 
You know, sometimes that's a real struggle, isn't it? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're new to all of this and maybe you felt the way that Saul felt. Like it's a little bit hard sometimes to find somebody and make a connection and feel like you fit in. I'll pause in my sermon to say, your family here and we love you very much. But the feeling is real. But the feeling is real. But thankfully, there was another in Saul's story. Thank God for Ananias. Thank God for the preacher. But Acts 9, 26 says this. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed or he attempted to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. Powerful men of God that they were. Peter and James and John and all the rest of the, the people that walked with Jesus, the apostles of the New Testament, first century church, they're freaked out by this converted terrorist named Saul. And they weren't quite sure that he even was a disciple. I mean, you can appreciate their nervousness. <laughs> they're thinking, hey, maybe this is just a bait and switch and he's worming his way in and, and if we're not careful, we're all goners. So you can appreciate it, but nevertheless, here is Saul trying to fit in, having a hard time. But I love verse 27, but Barnabas. Look at your neighbor and say, but Barnabas. But Barnabas, he took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles. And he declared unto them how Saul had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Thank God for a man like Barnabas. You know what Barnabas' name means? It means son of encouragement. And that's exactly what Barnabas was. Thank God for this man who was an advocate for the new believer and made sure that Saul didn't slip through the cracks. I thank God for every Barnabas in the house this morning that is willing to be on the lookout for a new believer, to be an advocate for somebody that's maybe on the fringes, struggling to fit in. I thank God for every encourager in the body of Christ. We need more of them. We need more, like Barnabas. Now, now if I could just address everybody in the room for a moment, maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel like you can make much of a difference in somebody's life. Maybe you're saying, well, you know, I'm not much of a Bible scholar and I don't understand the scripture like that guy hollering at me this morning. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're saying, I don't know my Acts 2 from a John 3 and no one's ever received the Holy Ghost when I laid my hands on them. I don't feel like I could do what Ananias did. And so often we look at those who are like Ananias, the way that we epitomize them at least, those who stand behind pulpits and preach sermons, those who are ministers by vocation perhaps, those that seem to have a gift for praying somebody through to the Holy Ghost. And we think that they are the most significant in seeing the life, uh, a life impacted and a soul saved. But can I tell you this morning, you don't need to be a smooth-tongued sermonizer to, be a to make a difference. You don't have to be on staff at the church, and you don't have to have Acts chapter 2 memorized to make a difference in the life of somebody. And, and I'm not saying this morning 
That we shouldn't study, that's biblical, study to show yourself approved. That's what Paul said. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be ready always to give an answer to them that ask it of us with meekness and with fear. That's what Peter said. I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to know more of the word and, and, and to exercise giftings and to pray with folks. I'm not saying any of that. But allow me to cast a wide net this morning. Because even if you don't feel like you're a theologian and you wouldn't know which passage to go to first in a Bible study, you still have a part to play in the salvation of souls. Because Ananias had the gift of impartation and he laid his hands on Saul. But Barnabas had the gift of inclusion. And he put his arm around Saul. And he brought him in. And he made sure he felt welcome. It took an Ananias, but can I say, it also took a Barnabas to see this man, this terrorist, converted to Christianity, to see him become an apostle and to do all the things that he did. It still takes a Barnabas today, a son of encouragement, an includer, to put your arm around somebody. Ananias preached the gospel to Saul, but Barnabas was the one at church that morning that made sure that Saul felt welcome and a part of God's family. That's Barnabas. He went around and said, hey, hey, Peter, hey, John, this is my new friend Saul. He's a great guy. God's been working in his life. Hey, did you, do you hear he just got the Holy Ghost recently? He was just baptized in Jesus' name. God's really doing something special. God's got big plans for this one. I just wanted you to meet him. Hey, Barnabas, this is Peter. He was the, the guy that preached on the day of Pentecost. Hey, Barnabas, this is John. He's the beloved, but, you know, we still like him. He's pretty cool. Hey, hey guys, this is Saul. This, this is Saul, and that's Barnabas, and we need Barnabas. I'll say it this way. You know, we need altar workers. We need aisle workers too. We need people that are willing to walk around this sanctuary looking for guests, looking for unfamiliar faces, and being an advocate, being an encourager, being somebody that welcomes them into the family of God. I thank God for every altar worker. And we do need people to lay hands on folks at the front. But we also need those who will put their arm around somebody in the foyer. We need an Ananias, but we also need a Barnabas. We need a Barnabas. Ananias went reluctantly at that to minister to a terrorist sent by God to preach the gospel. And we thank God for every pastor and every preacher, but they can't do it alone. And I'm not saying Barnabas was a preacher too, but for the sake of the sermon this morning, let me differentiate a little bit between the two. Because your pastor and those that preach to you can't do this alone. Those that stand in this pulpit and any evangelists that would come through, they have their giftings, but they can't do it alone. And when compared against your leaders, maybe in your mind you think, well, I can't make a difference like they can. I am just a drop in the bucket, but I've come to remind you that is where you'd be wrong because your drop in the bucket makes a big difference. Don't forget about Barnabas. It seems small to put his arm around somebody, maybe. It seems small to be a smiling face, but it made all the difference. Because Barnabas went, without a direct word from God, by the way. You don't need to feel a thing to be used by God. He didn't have a word from God, but nonetheless, he went and simply put his arm around a new believer. And it changed the course of history. It may have seemed small, a drop in the bucket. 
But Barnabas investing in and befriending Saul that day would end up contributing to his life in a major way. Music, come and join me. Because Saul becomes Paul, an apostle, who would end up traveling as a missionary, planting churches, mentoring leaders, and writing two-thirds of the New Testament in your Bible. Thank God for Barnabas. You know, I think that Barnabas, in some ways, had that same spirit as Jehoshaphat. And you may look at the story of Joash and Athaliah and Jehoshaphat and all that in the Old Testament, and you may think that her decision to spare one was just a drop in the bucket. Inconsequential, really. But Jehoshaphat saved a boy who would become a king, and it changed the course of a nation. His name was Joash, Godfire. You may feel this morning like Barnabas' friendship with Saul was just a drop in the bucket. Inconsequential, really. But Barnabas saved a man who became, he would have slipped through the cracks. Barnabas, you hear me, Barnabas, not just the preacher, Barnabas saved a man and, and prevented him from going out the back door. Barnabas saved a man who would become an apostle who changed the course of church history and even the course of our lives today. Barnabas fanned the flame of what Jesus had already started and what Ananias had imparted in Saul's life. And in doing so, and in doing so, Barnabas started a little, a little God fire of his own that ignited a wave of revival. Just a drop in the bucket, yeah, maybe. But look what God did. Look at what God can do with just one life ministering to another life. You might feel like you putting your arm around somebody. Likewise, just a drop in the bucket. Inconsequential, really. But let us all consider what God can do. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul said this, and I close. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. He said, he said, as you have therefore opportunity, which tells me that God doesn't need you to do it all. God needs you to do what you can. You can't do nothing, but you can't do everything. So fit in something. As you have opportunity. As you have opportunity. He said at the end of the verse, especially to them who are of the household of faith. And so I would say, Yes, our lost and polluted world, they need us, absolutely. And we won't stop reaching and preaching. But, but I, would, I would take the words of the apostle this morning and I would say that God is wanting us to find someone right here at church. Especially to them who are of the household of faith. Right here in the sanctuary, there's a new guest perhaps a struggling believer walking through a valley, the valley of valleys, the darkest season of their life, and God would say, hey, go and put your arm around them, Barnabas. Be an encouragement. As you have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. 
it may seem like there are too many people to impact. Even in the scope of a church congregation, forget eight billion, forget two and a half million, forget a hundred thousand, consider a few hundred. And sometimes even that can feel overwhelming. How can I get to everybody? How can I impact everybody? But let's not allow any sense of being overwhelmed to paralyze us. The enemy would like nothing more than to paralyze you with fear and to make you think, well, I can't get to everybody, so I don't, I don't know that I should go to anybody. Hell wins if that's our mentality. The enemy already wins by default if we do nothing. We must do something. And so let's find our Joash and let's take them under our wing. Let's find our Saul and put our arm around them. You see, it might feel like their lives are polluted, their problems, their issues, their sin, they're too much for us to make a difference. But that's where you'd be wrong. Because just a drop in the bucket it sure made a difference here. And your drop in the bucket can make a difference in the mess of somebody else's story. I believe that with every fiber of my being this morning. Your life, your family, yes, as small and insignificant as it might seem, your drop in the bucket makes eternal impact and pays eternal dividends. You never know how God can use your witness, your testimony, your good deed, or your kind gesture to change the course of somebody's eternity. As you stand with me this morning, let me remind you also what Paul said. We're all called to be preachers, and I'm not, I'm not negating that, and I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't preach to every creature. That's all of our calling this morning, okay? But watch what Paul said. Paul didn't say you have to go and preach a sermon to them or prophesy over them or lay your hands on them and pray that they'll be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's all important and wonderful, but Paul simply said, do good do good. He didn't say do some complicated religious pastoral thing if you want to separate this morning. He said do good. You can do that. You can do something good. You know, in Romans, Paul talks about how it was God's kindness that leads us, his goodness that leadeth, leadeth us that led us to repentance. And I would say this morning that the same works through us into our world today. Your kindness, your goodness can make a difference. You can do good and you can do good today. We all can do something good today. You don't need to go and dig out some sermon and all that. You don't need to do that. You, you don't need to go and and again, I'm not saying this stuff isn't good and necessary, but you don't need to go and pray and fast for five hours to, to do something good. You can call somebody on the phone today. You can love somebody with the love of God today. You can be kind to your neighbor today. You can talk kindly to your coworker or your classmate today. You can do it today. I wonder if anybody believes what I'm preaching this morning. Do you believe that you're dropping the bucket, that your life, that it does make a difference? makes a difference it's why Jesus said that you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world
because your life has disproportionately greater impact on the mess and the pollution around you than it has on you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And as you step out, you make a difference, as small as it might seem. It's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Somebody say, do something good. And they will glorify your Father, which is in heaven. I wonder this morning, we're going to close the service in a moment. But as a church congregation, and this could be your first time at CCC, and I already said it, your family, so you're welcome to join us if you'd like. I wonder if you'd step out of your seats. We're going to close around the altar this morning. Because I do believe that God wants to take your life, your family. God wants to take this church congregation. We're going to gather, we're going to pray together as a body of believers. Can I tell you that God wants to take CCC? And, and we got a lot of great stuff going for us and we thank God for it, but maybe even weighed against all the people in our city. Oh, it's just a drop in the bucket. How could we ever make a difference? That's what the enemy would say. The enemy would say, Capital Community Church, you're just a drop in the bucket. You can't make a difference. You can't see revival. They would say, you can't see backsliders return home. You, you, can't, you can't come against the flood tide of false doctrine. You can't see people filled with the Holy Ghost. You're just a drop in the bucket. That's what the enemy would say. But you know what I would say? And you know what I see here this morning? I see a God fire. I, I see a little ember beginning to burn. And I see it beginning to fan into a flame and spreading across this city. And we all have a part to play. Just a drop in the bucket, not on your life. With God, all things are possible, and he can take the worst mess of sin and do something beautiful with it. And so I wonder if you would raise your hands across this sanctuary this morning. And I don't know if you feel to pray, just a personal prayer, God. I pray you'd use me if you feel to pray over our church. But whatever, you, just pray this morning. Just lift your hands and lift your voice this morning. Because little is much when God is in it. Little is much when a spirit-filled believer steps out and makes their life count for the glory of God. Oh, yes. Oh, Yes, yes, yes. Can we just let that fire fan into a flame this morning? Can we just let the fires of revival begin to fan in our hearts this morning? God wants to awaken faith in somebody again. To believe that you matter. To believe that you can make a difference. To believe that you can go out and set our city on fire with the gospel. Oh, 
In the name of Jesus. 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 I believe that there's a special anointing that wants to rest on somebody in this altar and in this sanctuary today. If you just one more time with intention and with faith. Come on, even now the enemy would want to paralyze you and say, it can't make a difference. You can't matter. And if you would just raise your hands this morning. God wants to endue us with greater faith to go and do something. It might seem small, but God can use it for His glory. Come on, that Bible study might seem small, but God can use it for His glory.